Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. We've covered numerous examples of this before, but uh, but it, obviously in days before photography and videography, uh, one had to depend on illustrations and written descriptions to convey the reality of an organism, you know, be it a bird or a fish, uh, uh, what have you. Um, but this is especially true for creatures that lived in lands beyond your direct experience. You know, what are the, what, what are the, the mammals, what are the birds like on another continent? Well, you have to send people out in the world. They can, you know, to a certain extent, they can bring specimens back. Certainly they can bring parts of specimens back, but it's those illust- in, in some cases, uh, but it's those illustrations that, uh, that really bring things alive. Uh, now, certainly there are some fine examples of naturalist illustration out there, especially from recent centuries. I mean, there's some you know, gorgeous, like, say, like Audubon uh, illustrations and paintings, that sort of thing. Uh, but there are also countless examples, and we've touched on these before on the show, of rougher drawings. Um, drawings that feel like, uh, you know, there's been a game of telephone at play. Uh, and this is especially the case for examples found in various bestiaries and medieval manuscripts, among other places. And when we think of such misconstrued animals, you know, what do we tend to think about? You know, we think about the rhino, we think about the lion, the whale, the elephant, you know, great animals, apex predators and megafauna. But in this episode and the next episode, at the very least, we're going to get into another creature that has also experienced extreme inaccuracy in historic illustration, and that is the common beaver. Based on just some of the images we've been looking at, uh, a beaver might well be a, a kind of strange dog or a pig with, a, with perhaps a, f- a fish tail on its body, you know, a real hybrid feeling like it is uh, almost like it's a strange... Uh, 
uh, like dog mermaid. Uh, it might be in almost all respects a deer, like a, yeah. a, a creature with long legs and hooves. And uh, <laughs> it, it may also look like a, a strange and confused rodent with a, a great button seam running down its chest. It may even look like a weirdly serpentine lion. So Rob has been sharing medieval and renaissance illustrations of beavers with me for uh for a couple of days now and uh, i really do love all of them but i do think the one i like the most is the one that's just straight up a deer with hooves except it has uh, razor blades for teeth just like the rectangular razor blades yeah yeah this one i had to go deeper on this one because i was uh, it initially came up in an image search and, you know, I think it was maybe on a Pinterest or something. I was like, I can't trust this. But I eventually looked it up in the catalog of illuminated manuscripts. And it is a, a, a northern Italian illustration uh, from somewhere around the year 1440. Uh, and, yeah, it just looks like a, it is labeled as a beaver, but it is in all respects a deer. So I was just really astounded. At, like here especially is an image that it not only gets the form wrong regarding the target organism it gets everything about like the energy of the creature wrong you know because it's it's one thing if you have a depiction of a rhino that okay it's like a big armor plated thing with four legs it's like all right i mean that's it's an extravagant version of the truth Mm. but this it's like how how wrong did this game of telephone go Right. With the right, like with Durer's rhinoceros, you can see that beginning as a rhinoceros, but with embellishments. Yes. But with the beaver, it's like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you say beaver? I thought you asked for a depiction of a of a lion with a snake neck biting <laughs> its own genitals. That's right. Because and this is this is something we'll probably get into mostly in the next episode. But there is this pervasive myth uh, that uh, that existed for a very long time that when pursued by hunters a male beaver would chew off its own testicles and so many of these images be your creature more dog or cat like or 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 actually just a deer with razor sharp teeth it is often depicted uh gnawing at its testicles that at least we have some answers for in the next episode where that idea comes from and why it's so pervasive right so you got to stick around for next time to hear that yeah so let's let's start with with what we know. Let's start with the reality. We're going to start by talking about just basic beaver anatomy and behavior. And I probably don't have to tell most listeners out there what a beaver looks like. I mean, for one, for starters, like we have images all over the place of them. We have documentary footage. Many of you can go and see uh, a, a live beaver, at least in some sort of uh, like a zoo environment, or you have seen them in the past. But the, on the other side of the, the coin, it's like I still kind of have to tell you what a beaver looks like because the beaver is kind of in the same category as the spouting whale, as we discussed in some of our, our recent whale episodes, those particularly the ones on spouting and spouts, um, because uh, despite all this access to actual, you know, solid documentary footage of the beaver, we still have this rich history of cartoon depictions of beavers that inevitably cloud our understanding of the creatures. I mean, I think you get a fairly accurate mental picture if you just cross a squirrel with a grizzly bear. You know, <laughs> if you mash those two up, you're, you're most of the way there. But while that does get you sort of the shape, the outline right, uh, that does not tell you everything you need to know about beavers. Beavers are much stranger and more beautiful than I, than I realized. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of weird and wonderful um, aspects to their morphology, to their behavior. Um, 
And, and a lot of this is stuff that our, our popular conceptions of the beaver uh, don't get into. I mean, you know, they do get some of the things right. You know, the basic shape of the beaver is far better in cartoon than it is in many of these illuminated manuscripts. Uh, you know, some things hold up. Obviously, beavers are not going to sell you out to the white witch. That's absolutely true. Um, so C.S. Lewis was right on that count, even if he got the whole diet of the beaver wrong, because in, uh, in Narnia, apparently beavers like to eat fish and chips. Uh, that's not happening in, in the actual, actual natural world. On the other hand, I will say there is the kind of food an organism usually seeks out to eat in its environment versus what an animal will eat if given the opportunity. I don't know. I kind of wonder. I feel like if you gave a beaver uh, a basket of chips and some malt vinegar, I don't know. They might get into that. (laughs) All right. Well, let's start with the basics here. So beavers are rodents and are, in fact, the second largest extant rodent, surpassed only by the mighty capybara. Uh, beavers can weigh up to 50 kilograms or 110 pounds. There are two extant species of beaver. There's the North American beaver, or Castor canadensis, and the Eurasian beaver, Castor fiber. But the uh, Castoridae family includes some impressive extinct species as well. In fact, there were giant beavers that lived during the uh, uh, Pleistocene, reaching weights of up to 125 kilograms or 276 pounds. So that is more than twice as big as extant beavers. Though I was reading, they seem to have had smaller brains, among other morphological differences. But uh, yeah, so uh, they were bigger and maybe to some extent they didn't have to or had not yet developed uh, these very impressive um, behaviors and abilities that we'll get into concerning modern beavers. Now, one note on these guys, they were still smaller than the 1,500 kilogram or 3,300 pound giant pacaranas of South America. Uh, Extant pacaranas only get up to like 33 pounds or 15 kilograms, and they can still be found in the western Amazonian river basin. But uh, the giant ones, they were pretty massive. A lot of rodents of unusual size in prehistory. (laughs) All right, so no beavers today in that territory, but beavers can still get pretty chunky. That's right. Yeah, they're they're pretty big. And uh, this is a, like a fact I frequently forget that they're the second biggest rodent. The capybara is easy to remember, but it's, sometimes it's easy to forget who's coming in second. Now, it's extremely important to note that beavers are semi-aquatic, having evolved to thrive in various freshwater habitats. Uh, so a number of the things we're going to be discussing about them Uh, line up with their habitat. For instance, they can hold their breath for 15 minutes. They have transparent third eyelids called nictitating membranes to aid them in their swims, much like manatees. They also famously have long, flat black tails. We know this from the cartoons, obviously. Uh, And these aid them in their swimming. But they can also use them to sound an alarm by slapping the water, slapping the surface of the water. Mm -hmm. And they also use them to balance when they're carrying wood or other loads across the ground. Um, Mm. For any of you out there who watch a lot of animal videos on Instagram and so forth, you may have seen videos of adorable beavers carrying uh, carrots around. And if you're not looking closely enough, you might think they're dragging their tails. But if you will look closely, you can see that the tail is off the ground and it's helping them balance. One of the things I've noticed about watching beavers try to move objects around is how much more gracefully they do it in the water than on the land. So these are semi-aquatic mammals, but I don't know. It seems to me that the the water is where they're really in their element. They can swim 
fast and gracefully, even carrying like a an unwieldy branch that's kind of unbalanced or something. Uh, they, they do that all quite well in the water. And then once you see them sort of toddling a- along across the, the dry land, it, it looks much more comical and awkward. Yeah, and this is going to be important to keep in mind when we talk about the amazing ways that they transform an environment to better fit their needs and desires. Oh, but before we get into that, we, of course, have to talk about the teeth of the beaver. This is something that is, uh, is you know, gen- generally a, an important part of cartoon imagery uh, concerning the beaver. A lot of times cartoon beavers will speak with a kind of whistle in their voice, uh, but we also tend to get it quite wrong. Okay, so I'm trying to picture the cartoon beaver. I think what we always see is an overbite with two kind of square-shaped teeth grouped right together in the middle, like a person's front two teeth, but large and uh, and overlapping the bottom lip. Is is that about it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. The truth is much more shocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they have these, um, you know, the, 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 if you look at a skull of a beaver, it's pretty remarkable because it's like this... Uh, the really kind of exaggerated rodent skull uh, with just incredible incisors, you know, with these uh, these two big shovel-like uh, teeth coming down from the top, two big shovel-like teeth coming up from the bottom, um, and then the, the rest of the, the, like the back teeth are, are much further back, you know, giving them some ample room to do the kind of uh, woodwork that they need to do with those chompers. The skull is a powerful bone hinge, and it's like it's like a kind of uh, alien biotechnological set of bolt cutters, except the bolt cutters are orange teeth. That's right. The orange is key. This is something I almost never see in uh, like a cutesy illustration or a cartoon depiction of a beaver. Um, so, yeah, they're, the, these teeth have thick layers of enamel, which has this orange colorization because while other rodents boast magnesium-enriched tooth enamel, beavers have iron-enriched enamel. They're like, I mean, it's, it's like something out of, a, out of a comic book, right? Um, the iron makes their teeth stronger against just the pure mechanical stress that they put them through. We should also note that these teeth continue to grow throughout their lives uh, to the point where they have to gnaw them down on trees to keep them down. Uh, but yeah, they're just super resilient, always growing. And they're also more resilient to acid as well, based on their composition. Just some tough, rusty looking teeth. Yeah. Yeah. The, the orange is really quite shocking. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, another essential biological aspect of the beaver before getting into their behavior is that they have a cloaca. Mm. So most mammals do not have a cloaca. Uh, there are some exceptions. You know, you look at the monotremes, uh, golden moles, marsupial moles, tinrex, uh, just a few examples. But um, mammals have mostly lost these general purpose openings over the course of their evolution. But in beavers, they seem to be present as a, as a, as a case of secondary evolution, perhaps as an adaptation I've read against. Uh, it may have to do with their, the watery environments they find themselves in, protecting themselves against um, you know, infections that might occur d- due to the state of that water. But it, it's also something, and this will come in, become important, I believe, in the next episode as well. It can make it difficult to sex a beaver. Uh, as males and females look pretty much the same unless the female happens to be pregnant or nursing at the time that you're trying to sex them. Mm-hmm. And when I say you, I, of course, mean people who have authority and expertise to be out in the wild trying to sex a beaver. Uh, you know, leave it to the professional biologist. Leave it to beaver scientists. Yes. So these various features aid the beaver in its primary enterprise of ecosystem engineering. We all know that beavers build dams. Uh, you know, this is, of course, is, is true of the cartoons. But what does that really mean? What is, why, is, why are beavers building dams? What are they accomplishing? Uh, 
So they actively alter their ecosystem via the blockage of rivers and streams with structures of like, uh, you know, sticks, mud, chunks of trees, that sort of thing, um, all cobbled together to, uh, to dam up the water. And this allows them to create new lakes, new ponds, whole floodplains. Meanwhile, the lodges they construct for themselves are also made out of this kind of stuff, branches and mud and so forth. And they can only be accessed from underwater entrances in their constructed ponds. Yeah, so this is something I don't know if I realized before. I think a lot of people assume that beavers live in their dams, but I think the better way to think about it is Beavers construct dams in order to block waterways, which causes the area upstream of the dams to deepen and have a more uh, lake-like environment rather than a, than a flowing river or stream. And then in that flooded area, that is where they build the lodge they live in. So they sort of create a flooded area, which can, it can serve multiple purposes, one to house the lodge, but then also they can sort of uh, dig out from there. I, I think you're about to mention something about this. Yeah, they're, they're a lot like humans. Human yeah. beings do this with their modern technology. They come to, say, a, um, a dry desert environment or a, or, a, or a swamp environment. And they're like, you know what would go great here? What I would like uh, for my purposes of living here? I'd love it to be just like a nice little park with some nice grass, you know, and maybe a few trees. Um, I'm going to change everything so that it fits my needs. So the primary purpose for the beaver dam is to create a protective body of water for that lodge making it even more difficult for predators to get at them. And even if predators were to get to them, they have that underwater escape route uh, in the event of an attack. That's the, only, that's the only way in and out. Now, it's, it's worth noting, however, that especially in parts of Eurasia, beavers don't always have the same predator threat they once did, but they build anyway because no one told them not to. And also, more seriously, like, even though there are not predators now, I mean, that's, you know, the, the, any kind of evolutionary change would occur over a, a, a much vaster period of time uh, than the removal of their predators amounts to. Right. So an environment full of, say, like gray wolves and bears may have shaped them. And even if there are many fewer of these predators than there once was, that they are still the animal made by that world. Right. For instance, they're, they're still certainly nocturnal creatures. I mean, they're also active you know, dusk and dawn a, a little bit. But during the day proper, uh, they're inside, they're resting. Uh, and part of that is to avoid predators. Now, you mentioned earlier, Joe, that you, even just looking at videos, you can tell that they're more awkward on, on land than they are in the water. And that's, of course, another big important aspect of their damming of waterways, creating this sort of vast floodplain, like turning um, a stream going through a forest or, uh, or, or something to this effect, into kind of a flooded forest environment. Uh, this opens up speedy water routes back to their lodge from prospective feeding grounds. Yeah, sort of the same way. You could imagine it like humans creating roads, like paved roads between, say, the farms that they work during the day and the houses they live in. Uh, but beavers would do this by instead creating flooded areas, especially they can sort of like dig out channels along the bottom that the water from these flooded areas can run into, allowing them to have uh, a sort of uh, canals like roads made of water where they can move quickly, where they can move submerged, which is uh, safer and better for them than trying to move awkwardly over land. Yeah. 
Now, in, in doing this, of course, they alter the ecosystem, uh, local ecosystem in a major way, opens up opportunities for various other organisms as well, uh, and also discuss some of the potential uh, downsides, at least for some organisms in a bit. But at any rate, this cements the beaver's place as a keystone species. Beavers uh, uh, just, just completely change the immediate environment, produces more open water, higher water tables. And uh, yeah, it's this entire system they have going for them here is just so fascinating. You can, if you look online, you can find some, uh, some uh, like side profiles, some cutaways of what the lodge looks like. And it's, it's pretty ingenious. It also serves as a place for them to store food and even provides refuge during frozen months. They don't hibernate um, properly, but they can hold up in there. One of the things I've read about is that they often uh, can store lots of food. So they're vegetarians. They eat uh, actually like, you know, parts of trees, vegetation from all around them, which they can keep stored in the water under uh, underneath the pond created by their dams. And that's an interesting thing. They can raise the water level in order to help protect areas of uh, of like food storage in the water for the winter, because by raising the water level, they create more area underneath that won't freeze over when the weather gets cold. Yeah. And these these lodges and dams that they can they even though uh, the the beavers themselves tend to only live about, I think, eight years max. Um, a single lodge and dam can be maintained over generations. So the lodges may end up with like several stories to them and the dams can get quite massive. There's an Alberta area dam that was built apparently in the 1970s initially, wasn't discovered till around 2007 because it's just out in the middle of nowhere. It's not like in downtown Alberta. It's like out in the the boonies. Uh, And it's thought to be the world's largest beaver dam, known beaver dam anyway, covering a good half mile. There's actually an Atlas Obscura article about it. If anyone's interested, just look up World's Largest Beaver Dam and you can see some like aerial photographs. You know, something interesting I was reading about was the role of beavers in uh, maintaining uh, ecosystem health by allowing for a greater diversity of different types of plant life to thrive. I think sort of in the same way that forest fires, you might think of them as purely destructive. Of course, they Mm -hmm. are destructive, but, uh, you know, forest fires occur naturally all the time. And when a forest burns, that creates sort of new opportunities for new types of uh, plants and other life forms to thrive in a place that was once covered up by, you know, a lot of tree canopy. So in the areas around beaver dams and lodges, they will clear out lots of the trees. They'll literally chew them down and they'll fall and, you know, beavers will do what they will with them. Uh, But this creates all kinds of opportunities for other plants and other life forms that wouldn't normally thrive in the forest to 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 have a shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, The 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 paper that I came across was talking about sort of like the pros and cons. Uh, I have another one I'll get into about some of the potential benefits. but. just to give you an, an, a full idea of sort of the rodent altered landscape we're talking about here, um, I was looking at a 2015 paper published in IOP conference uh, series or presented in the IOP conference series, Earth and Environmental Science. Uh, this one is, uh, this was by Roskova, Tamina et al. And they talk about some of the positive and negative consequences, at least initially stressing some of the negatives maybe that are not um, uh, at least instantly discussed as much, but you get soil overwetting, obviously, because you're getting flooding occur- that occurs. You also can have water stagnation that results in uh, lack of oxygen, high carbon concentration, and the death of many aquatic organisms. 
And then the flooding can also cause vegetation death. But at the same time, the authors here stress that it can result in a rise in the biodiversity of water organisms. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, they're changing everything. They're changing the balance of the local ecosystem. Um, and uh, it's creating a lot of opportunities for new things, but it is also cutting things short for uh, things that were living there already. Mm-hmm. Now, a really interesting study that I came across, this was a, a 2022 Stanford study by Dewey et al. published in Nature Communications. And in this paper, they point out that beaver habitat ranges in the U.S. are going to continue to widen with warming temperatures driven by climate change. But the benefits of their dam building will actually, quote, overshadow climate extremes, unquote. So this is not to say beaver dams will cancel out climate change or anything like that. But in some respects, it kind of lessens the blow specifically as far as water quality in mountain watersheds are concerned. Hmm. Um, beaver dams can raise water levels upstream and divert water into soil and surrounding waterways. And this ends up sort of, this ends up like creating a robust filter system, a filtration system, uh, for excess nutrients and contaminants for the water before it passes on downstream. Hmm. So today beavers in North America and Eurasia are, are both doing great. Uh, they have bounced back from near extinction due to hunting, and uh, we may touch on some of that a little bit more uh, in the in the next episode. But uh, because there are a few different reasons that have driven beaver hunting over the years. Um, but um, to go back to uh, speaking of their their construction of dams and their uh, changing of the the environment, uh, there's another great illustration I came across by Nicholas Defer, who lived 1646 through 1720. And uh, this is just a, a small scene from a larger map. He was a French cartographer. Um, so uh, this illustration is just, uh, you know, filling in some of the blank spaces like we've discussed before on some of these older maps. But this illustration shows beavers at work. Um, they are downing trees and they are dragging off the wood to build things. Uh, there are the beavers themselves look largely uh, accurate. They may be a little more bear like. Um, but their basic morphology is there. The, the main problems here are that, first of all, there's like, um, you know, 100 beavers in this, in this one image, <laughs> like they're working as an army. And then also, like, clearly there wasn't a lot of detail on how they carry the wood because the, the, the central beaver that you see is standing up in a bipedal posture with a, an armload of wood thrown over his shoulder like a human being. Yeah. Yeah, like a Paul Bunyan carrying an axe. Yeah. <laughs> but I, li- I like the spirit of industry that they captured here, um, despite some of the ridiculous details. And again, a huge improvement over some uh, illustrations from previous centuries. I wonder, is this one of the maps we looked at in our Horovakui episodes where we were talking about maps with excessive illustrations? I don't believe it is. Uh, I, I looked at a bigger version of the map, and I almost included it in our notes, and I don't think I had seen it before. It was a map that uh, it, it's known as the beaver map and has to do with, uh, with the locations of beavers because it has to do with uh, the hunting of beavers, oh, uh, which, I again, was, was quite a big industry for a while there, uh, so big that it, it just about wiped them out. So the large semi-aquatic rodents have come to flood the world and to remake it <laughs> according to their designs. But the, the weirdness and the complexity doesn't stop there. Uh, Joe, tell us a little bit uh, about beaver society and about 
beaver tool use? Yeah, uh, Rob, I think you found one of these papers first, and that's what started this whole thing. But I got lost on a uh, going down a rabbit hole or maybe a beaver canal. Uh, uh, trying to search out examples of possible tool use documented in beavers. Uh, And in fact, there are a few very interesting different observations corresponding to each of the extant species. Beavers clearly are an interesting type of animal to look at for signs of tool-using intelligence, since they are masters of manipulating their environment through the dams and the lodges they build. Though uh, I think it's interesting that nest building is often not typically thought of or not sort of front of mind as an example of tool use. And there are different examples that different uh, zoologists or animal behavior experts will use to try to define tool use. So in the papers I was looking at, a few different standards were cited. One is a definition of tool use by a researcher named Alcock, who says it is, quote, the manipulation of an inanimate object that improves the organism's efficiency in altering the position or form of some other object. (laughs) So, you know, using an inanimate object from the environment to better alter the former position of something else. Another definition I found cited, this is from Beck in 1980, quote, the external employment of an unattached environmental object to alter more efficiently the form, position, or condition of another object, another organism, or the user itself when the user holds or carries the tool during or just prior to use and is responsible for the proper and effective orientation of the tool. Now, uh, I appreciate all of the conditions on that because I think it is important for people to be specific about what they're talking about when they look for examples of tool use. But I also wonder, once you're specifying that many conditions, is the category of tool use becoming more like a, a function of the definition you lay out than, uh, than a fundamentally different type of activity itself than some other activity that, that wouldn't quite fit this definition? Yeah, I mean, and, and sometimes we can almost get too hung up, I think, on the on the, the idea of tool use and the definition of tool use, because we'll look at the most complicated bird nest or bower that you can imagine, and we'll be like, well, it's intricate, it's amazing, it's beautiful, but uh, have you seen this monkey stabbing a smaller monkey with a stick? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, it, 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 you know it, it can almost, you can almost set it up as this this thing that is the thing that we do. You know, that is a very, there's something very human about tool use and, you know, obviously a huge, huge aspect of uh, human life and human development. But, um, but yeah, it, it seems like at times it, a lot of extra mental gymnastics is, uh, has to be, uh, has to be utilized in order to even discuss it. So I'm not going to get super hung up on definitions of tool use or what really counts as tool use today. We've talked about some of those debates in plenty of episodes in the past. Instead, uh, I'm just going to like talk about some studies describing specific behaviors and you can make up your own mind about whether it seems like tool use to you. So the first thing I want to talk about is a, is an older observation. It, uh, it's older than either of the two papers that I, I'm going to discuss here, but it's cited in the first of them, and I'll, I'll get to that paper uh, itself in a second. But the, uh, the observation is that a researcher named Giorgio Pileri observed something interesting while studying two captive beavers at the Bern Brain Anatomy Institute in 1983. 
So the beavers were living in a concrete pool that was supplied with a constant flow of fresh water, and overflow of this pool was routed away through a series of three drain holes, each 0.8 centimeters in diameter, so little holes. And the beavers had been given a supply of sticks and twigs to do what they wanted with. And for some reason, what they did is they selected and cut three sticks from their supply to the exact dimensions needed to plug the tiny drain holes that where water drained away from their pool. And this completely stopped the flow of water away from the pool. Hmm. Now, what's going on here? At first, it was kind of hard for me to believe this would be fully intentional behavior, as in like the beavers understood that they were plugging the drains to stop the flow of water from their enclosure. Uh, but then I thought, you know, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if beavers have like a sense for detecting gaps in dams and plugging them. Like maybe they're good at sensing. Uh, my first instinct was maybe they sense like the delta P, you know, the difference in pressure, like when water from a large pool is flowing out of a small pipe or hole and you could feel that pressure that would like get your hand stuck to the hole if you held it there or which in larger scenarios can be uh, of a great danger to divers. You know, you don't want to go near like the intake hole at a dam if you're diving near it. Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, so maybe they sense the Delta P and, uh, and so they sense that and they, they naturally want to plug it up. But I didn't know. However, I then sort of came across an answer. So I was watching a segment on North American beavers from BBC Earth narrated by David Attenborough. And this documentary segment captured a scene of beavers finding a leak in their dam and then getting right to work, retrieving wood, vegetation, and clumps of sediment down from the bottom of the pond to plug up the leak in the dam where water was running over the top. And Attenborough, in this uh, documentary segment, narrates that beavers are thought to detect these leaks by hearing the sound of trickling water. And when they do, they begin repair work almost immediately. So it seems to be fastidious, almost compulsive, uh, this compulsive mm. desire to fix the holes when they hear the water trickling. And this would make the drain plugging behavior in the concrete enclosure in the 80s make a lot more sense. So I decided to look into this further to see if uh, if this was indeed true. To some degree, it seems it is. Uh, and so uh, I didn't have time. This was soon before we started recording. I didn't have time to find the primary reference on this. But I did find a, a good 2015 Gizmodo blog post by Esther Inglis Arkle writing up, uh, summarizing the research of a Swedish zoologist named Lars Wilson, who studied beavers back in the 1960s. And according to the summary, Lars Wilson found that dam building was instinctual rather than learned. And the way Wilson identified with this was that if you took young beavers and you separated them from their parents at birth, they would still build dams basically the same way, using the same techniques as their parents, even though they were clearly not having the opportunity to be taught to do that. So it seems based on that, at least, this is probably a routine behavior. It's based on beaver DNA. They don't have to be taught. But Wilson also found that beavers didn't always build dams. Uh, in environments with still water or only very gently moving water, dam building was not a priority. The beavers would just maybe they'd like dig a hole in the mud and just chill there. You know, they, they just wouldn't build. 
And so by manipulating different variables, Wilson identified the sound of trickling water as the primary trigger for dam building, even to the point of a discovery that I, this was the part I found most fascinating. If you put a speaker in the beaver's enclosure and you played the sound of trickling water through it, the beavers would go to the speaker and start building on top of it. They would start piling up <laughs> sticks and mud and branches over the speaker playing the water sounds. They were trying to plug the speaker to make it stop leaking. Oh, my goodness. Wilson also found that if outflow pipes, so you had a place where there was actually water leading away from the, uh, from the pool, but you carefully designed the pipes so that they made no noise, the beavers would not be able to find and cover them. So this might lead you to think, okay, so like the louder the rushing of the water, the more beavers want to make a dam there. But it also seems like it's not quite that simple because I was reading a news article from the Harvard Graduate School of the Arts and Sciences called Damned If They Do by Paul Massari. <laughs> Uh, this article profiles the research of an environmental engineer named Jordan Kennedy, uh, who has done research on, on beavers and their dam building practices and the environmental effects thereof. And Kennedy uh, says that it can't just be about the, like, the magnitude of sound of moving water or beavers would be trying to build dams across Niagara Falls. You know, just like loud, violent, rushing waters where building would be totally impractical. So instead, there's got to be a kind of Goldilocks zone for dam construction, something that the beavers naturally detect that allows them to know, okay, this is about the right amount of flow to try to dam up. Yeah, yeah. Damming up Niagara Falls, like, obviously, that would be great. Like, that's kind of like the, the, the beaver fan fiction. That's the, the, the pipe dream. But is it practical? No, you need to have that the, the, just the right environment that can then be manipulated to make the ideal environment for the beaver. Right. So uh, the uh, author of this article writes, quote, the water in a beaver's habitat needs to be a certain depth, for instance, to keep a food cache from freezing to the bottom in winter and to enable them to evade predators. The plants that beavers prefer to eat flourish best when water flows at a certain velocity. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're looking for this Goldilocks zone, an area of a certain amount of water flow, maybe a certain narrowness of the channel or certain depth of the channel, and that's the place where you want to dam it up. And beavers, apparently, they locate that. A big part of the... The sense data informing them of that area appears to be sound. Maybe the overwhelming part of it is sound, but there may be other cues as well. And so, I, I don't know, I thought this was so interesting. And I'm just trying to imagine what it's like to be a beaver, to have this powerful instinctual drive to plug leaks. So imagine the same kind of base level instinctual drive that humans might have for sex or for food or to care for children, all of the like the, the most powerful drives in our brains. But there's a drive like that to hunt down the source of anything that sounds like trickling water and to just plug it with junk. <laughs> You know, that, I don't know. That's yeah. like that's another that's another type of uh, mind experience, a relationship to the environment. Wow! Wow! Yeah, like what would? Ooh, yeah, how would like I mean, we can't help but extrapolate that into like a a human like intellect and human like culture. Like, what would advanced beaver civilization be like? Would would they actually go after like complete inundation, like a complete flooding 
situation, the destruction of, of, of all naturally occurring waterfalls? Or would they just kind of dream about it? Or what, what would their TV shows be? Would it just be like countless channels of, of leak uh, plugging and so forth? This beaver thought she had it all, but then she heard the trickle and couldn't find it. <laughs> Searching like, <laughs> like all, all dramas begin with the conflict of hearing a trickle. <laughs> That's the call to adventure. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
But anyway, all that stuff I just uh, read about got kicked off because I was reading that uh, that anecdote about the findings of Giorgio Pileri in 1983, uh, which was cited in a paper by D.M. Barnes called Possible Tool Use by Beavers, Castor Canadensis in a Northern Ontario Watershed, published in the Canadian Field Naturalist in 2005. So this is one of the, the main two papers I was looking at about uh, tool uh, possible cases of tool use in beavers. Uh, Barnes says that this report is based on evidence relating to the North American beaver, uh, that's Castor canadensis, at a remote dam site in the Chapleau Crown Game Preserve in northern Ontario. The author says at this location, they found a clump of willow stems, these are like little small tree trunks, that had been cut by beavers. But the fascinating thing was they were cut at the extraordinary height of approximately one meter off the ground. Beavers are not that tall. Normally, these beavers cut at an average height of about 30 centimeters. So the beavers were chomping off these willow trees at three times the normal height they could reach with their teeth. Hmm. Barnes writes, quote, I made a careful examination of the area and found that uh, found that there was no apparent way the beavers could have cut the stems at such a height. When I studied the willow clump more closely, I noted that there was a freshly cut willow stem, approximately 12 centimeters in diameter, leaning against the main stem of the willow clump. Its approximate angle was 45 degrees. In addition, I observed cutting at both ends of the leaning willow segment. And then there was a there was a photo accompanying this in the article. Now, at first, the author thought that, okay, so this is a log propped up 45 degrees against the tree that is cut off very tall. Uh, the author thought maybe this uh, this log there had simply fallen that way. I don't know. It's something that the beaver cut and then it fell. But that seemed impossible on further examination because the log was clearly from a different tree than the stem it was leaning against. Like there was different mm. bark texture and color and so forth. And its position just did not seem plausible if it had fallen from above. Another possibility the author considered was that these willow trunks had been foraged while there was heavy snow on the ground in the winter. So maybe the beavers were able to reach a meter up the, the trunks of these trees uh, by crawling around on top of the snow. Okay. But the author thinks that's really unlikely, given the position of the willow clump relative to the beaver uh, dam and lodge and its, uh, its entrance and exit. It seems it would have required a major overland journey uh, by the beavers on the top of the snow in, a in the winter uh, at a time where this just would not fit with their normal behavior. Hmm. Instead, the author suggests that maybe what happened here is... The beaver used a prop. The beaver used a piece of a log that it had cut off at both ends and propped it up against the base of the trees and then climbed up that and was able to chew off the willow stems at uh, an upper level rather than a lower level. Now, why would this even be beneficial? Uh, the author says this is, would be probably to reduce foraging time. So the longer you forage, Number one, the more thermal stress you're exposed to, uh, you know, the, not being the right temperature, but more importantly, the longer you are exposed to predation. Apparently, beavers do not like to spend a lot of time out on the ground, out of the water. So they're trying to hustle as fast as they can whenever they're out there cutting. And in this case, 
apparently using a cut stem to uh, climb up the willow trunks to access a higher up part of the tree to chew through would have meant that they had to spend less time chewing and less time cutting. All right. So they go like a little bit higher. They just it's going to be less. It's going to be a narrower um, bit of wood to chew through. That's what I assumed. It didn't specify exactly why cutting higher up was reduced foraging time, but that was my interpretation. I could be wrong. And that's why they potentially could be using essentially a beaver ladder, a, a <laughs> beaver bit of scaffolding. Right. But we don't know. This is just one observation. And uh, and also, they didn't see them doing it. They just found this strange piece of scaffolding there later. Yeah, more, more mysteries related to, I mean, I guess this is kind of cutting into some of the mysteries involved in these wildly inaccurate depictions of beavers is that these are creatures that live often in very rural uh, situations, far from from human activity. They're probably doing it at night, and they're spending Mm -hmm. as little time necessary doing it out where other eyes could see them. Right. Okay, second paper I came across, alleging possible tool use behaviors by beavers. This is called tool use in a display behavior by Eurasian beavers or castor fiber in the journal Animal Cognition by Thompson et al. in 2007. So here the authors write that documentation of tool use is relatively rare in rodents. And prior to this paper, there were no documented cases they knew of of tools being used by rodents in what are called agonistic displays. Now, agonistic is a word used in the study of animal behavior to describe conflict or fighting. So an agonistic behavior is not necessarily fighting itself, but also could include social behaviors related to fighting. So these would include threat displays, trying to, you know, look big or otherwise intimidate another animal, uh, displays of aggression, as well as things like submission or retreat behavior. The authors of this paper say that in their field observations of the Eurasian beaver, they witnessed a behavior that they call stick display which they interpreted as an agonistic display behavior. And what this consisted of is beaver would go pick up an object, uh, usually a stick, whenever a stick was available, and then it would rise up on its hind legs and then move the upper body rapidly up and down while holding the stick or other object in its mouth and front paws. And Rob, I attached a picture for you to look at. They had a photo of this. In this photo, the beaver is in the shallow part of a waterway. It's uh, standing up on its back legs. It's kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like roaring posture, but it's got a big old <laughs> stick in its mouth, and it's gripping the stick with its two forepaws, and uh, the water is splashing all around as the stick, I guess, rapidly dips in and out. It's impressive, and it's, it's frankly a little intimidating. Uh, this this beaver saying, "Behold, look at the at the feats of strength I am capable of." So, several observations about this behavior. First of all, they say beavers only picked up these display sticks or other objects at the same location where they were used, and they were never seen modifying the object. So, it wouldn't it wasn't like they would carry a stick around and then and then use it in a different location or modify the stick in any way. So, for instance, to compare it to like human tool use that we've discussed in the past, rocks, uh, this this would not be on the level of picking out favored rocks for throwing at uh, other humans, polishing them, changing them, etc. This would be more on the level of when threatened, you might look down, grab a rock and use it. Though, of course, in this case, the beavers are not hitting each other with the sticks. Allegedly, the hypothesis here is that they're using them as a pure defensive display. 
Right. Uh, second thing, this often happened in shallow water, so the shaking of the stick would cause splashing in the surrounding water, but occasionally it also took place on dry land, such as in weeds where there was no significant sound produced. So the authors think because it took place in both scenarios and in when it was on dry land, it didn't really make a noise, they think it is primarily a visual signal. An important bit of context is that Eurasian beavers are territorial. They live in family groups with usually a dominant breeding pair and then assorted offspring of that breeding pair. And they defend the borders of their territory from encroachment by other beavers. So they mark their territory by scent. Uh, this is done with secretions uh, from the anal glands or castorium, uh, which castorium, I believe, we'll talk about more later in the series in part two. Mm -hmm. Allegedly smells like vanilla, uh, but we'll come back. Uh, when rival beavers come into a family group's territory, the home turf beavers will react, first of all, with tail slapping. Rob, you mentioned this. This is a loud signal that beavers make by repeatedly smacking the water surface with their tails. This is also used to alert members of the family group when a predator is sighted. They also respond to unwelcome beaver presence by visual displays or sometimes with actual fighting, though physical fights are relatively rare. The observations carried out in this study were conducted on wild Eurasian beavers in southeast Telemark, Norway. Overall, the researchers uh, observed 131 cases of stick display behavior that met the criteria for inclusion in their study by four adult males, two adult females, and five unidentified animals. However, it seems that some individual beavers engaged in stick displays far more than the others. Quote, it was clear from our observations that one female, Birgit, and one male, Froda, were the main performers with a contribution of 51.9% and 35.9% respectively of the total number of stick displays observed. So what does that add up to? It's like 87% of stick displays were from two beavers. Wow. Go Froda. But the real champion is Birgit here. She's got more than half of them just, just under her belt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, Birgit needs to get get all get most of the credit here. Fro Frodo doing doing pretty well as well. So they say stick displays happened almost exclusively at the borders of beaver family group territory, and most displays appeared to be directed at rivals. Uh, the displays were often preceded by scent marking, so this kind of suggests it probably is being used as an agonistic display. However, this behavior, while common in the groups observed in this study is not necessarily generalizable to the total world population of these beavers. It has not really been observed in beavers generally across the full range, suggesting it may be specific to certain populations. Wow. Like even some, like some sort of like localized beaver culture? Yeah, maybe. Um, apparently something, at the time of this study, the author said there were some isolated reports of similar behavior in a few North American beavers, but not most, and it was not found in all uh, Eurasian beavers either. So the authors argue that stick displays might be especially favored in high-pressure situations. From reading their description of the of the area, it seems like the groups observed in this study might be in especially crowded beaver territory where, uh, like, uh, you know, the areas around different family dams and, uh, and lodge sites are sort of all butting up against one another. Hmm. They all also right. observed higher rates of stick displays in springtime, meaning it's possible it could have some association with breeding. But 
if the stick shaking is a genuine agonistic display behavior, the evolutionary purpose would probably be to convey honest information about the beaver's size and strength. So it's like, I'm big and strong. Look at how I can shake this stick. You don't want to bother actually getting into a fight with me, right? We don't have to do this. I I like these uh, sort of levels of communication that seem to exist between um, uh, beaver groups here. You know, it's like at the end of the day, all beavers really want to do is build things and plug holes. Uh, you know, they have, they have a lot of hole plugging to do. They have, a, they, they have a lot of work to accomplish. They don't really have time to get into these fights. These fights are just, uh, would be destructive. Uh, so instead, let's just make sure that we're very clear about how everyone feels about these, these border scenarios. And uh, if need be, let me just show you, uh, give you a taste of what could happen. Just look at this stick lifting ability here. The neighbors are getting nosy and Birgit shakes a branch and is like, no, don't make me do it. Don't make me do it. And it seems most of the time they're like, "Okay, I won't make you do it, Birgit. (laughs) Man, I think we've got to be out of time for for part one of Beavers here. Right. But there will be more. Yeah. In the next episode, we're going to we're going to get back to that idea, that that false idea of Beavers whilst being hunted, deciding to chew their own testicles off. Uh, again, that you see various uh, examples of, particularly from like illuminated manuscripts and so forth and bestiaries. Uh, we'll come back and discuss that. Uh, plus, who knows what else we'll uncover about beavers in our research. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have any, uh, especially since uh, a lot of times we do these Tuesday to Thursday, this one's going to be a Thursday to Tuesday. So who knows, you might be able to get some really uh, core beaver facts and beaver experiences into us uh, before we record the next episode. Uh, you know, something you've picked up somewhere or just, you know, accounts of observing beavers in the wild. I'd love to hear about that. So uh, whatever your feedback, whatever your thoughts, uh, share them with us. We would love to hear from you. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, So look for those in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. On Mondays, we do a listener mail episode. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. Uh, I know sometimes people say, I wish they were longer. Uh, well, they're short. That's part of how it, how it works. But uh, <laughs> but occasionally we're going to put out, we're going to continue to experiment experiment with putting out omnibus episodes that may take up like multiple related monster facts or artifacts and put them out. So periodically you'll get a longer one in there as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, let us know if you're liking that and we can keep doing it. Oh, and then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. 
Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.